Good morning, everybody. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. I get the privilege of teaching the Bible. And uh, if you're maybe new with us this morning, or maybe it's been a little while since you've been connected with us, we are doing this rather large series through the third piece of literature in the New Testament. It's called the Gospel of Luke. And this particular uh, account of the life of Jesus is a very powerful one because it really is laboring to communicate to us exactly what the nature of his message is about, his ministry is about, his kingdom is about, and his gospel, what it's all about. And so from that, we've titled this series, The Scandalous God. And uh, even that sounds a little like, ooh, edgy, scandalous God. But, but when you go through this particular account of the life of Jesus, you see that many things that he does... It's a scandal from the way religion understood what God was to be about, what they were perceiving this coming Messiah was going to do. Everything Jesus does is very upside down, backwards, and counterintuitive to what they anticipated. And so from that, it makes a journey through this particular gospel helpful and fruitful, but also challenging. And even as you just heard our scripture reading for today, that's going to be part of what we look at today. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff in there where you're like, what do I do with that? What, what's the scandalous thing that Jesus seeks to teach? Well, I think there's some really important things for us. I think there will be some things that challenge us a little bit. And from that, I think it's good that we prepare ourselves for that. So I just want to give you a moment right now uh, of silence where you can just pray uh, silently to yourself, to God right there with just you and he, and say, you know what, prepare me for what you have for me. Holy Spirit, open me up for what you want to teach me and how I can be more like Jesus in what I do on my daily life. So let's go ahead and take a moment together, then I will pray and we will get underway. Jesus, I thank you for the rich love that you show toward us. And part of that love is to challenge us, is to refine us, is to even cause us to look at maybe some of our own preconceptions or our own biased perspectives. And then from that, to uh, see those things pushed out of our lives and in its place that you would reside as Lord, as King, as Master, as example in which we are to live our lives, right? We want to live like you. We want to think and react and feel and care and invest like you. And so I pray that as we continue in this rather challenging section of the Gospel of Luke, that you would do that very thing, that you would cause us to look at ourselves and see how you want to grow us so that we might better represent you in the world. And so, Jesus, we thank you for this privilege today. We thank you for the grace you show. We thank you for the spirit that teaches. And we thank you that you are always shaping us and developing us into your image. So for that, we are grateful and we seek you today in your good and kind name. Amen. So, um, like I was saying, um, for a while now, we've been looking at this message of Jesus and calling it the scandalous God. And, and in the last couple of chapters of the Gospel of Luke, as long as we've been in it since we've returned, we have been in this midst of a conflict, if you will. And it's this conflict or this tension between kind of the way of Jesus and the way of religion. And for some of you, that might seem a little strange because you're like, well, isn't Christianity a religion? Why would Jesus be kind of counter-religion? 
Well, in his setting, in the first century, there was a religious system. It's a religious system built on the concepts of the Old Testament, but there had been things that were lost in the process. There was brokenness in the system, and Jesus is stepping into that, and he's seeking to refine it, reform it, challenge it, redeploy it in a new way, and religion is fighting back. And it's been doing that a lot throughout this particular account of the life of Jesus. And there's a part of me, when I read through this gospel, I'm perplexed by this constant um, warning or repeating of this conflict between religion and Jesus. And, and let me explain this for a minute. So um, I'm looking at a person, this man named Luke, who wrote this gospel, and here he is, and he has limited paper and a finite amount of time to write down what is important in his thinking when it comes to Jesus. And so from that, I honestly can't help but step back for a minute, look at this account and say, Luke, why do you spend so much time spilling so much ink over articulating why religion, why the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the system, why do you spend so much time talking about that conflict? See, I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but it's really strange. We have looked at 16 chapters of this gospel. Of the 16 chapters, 13 of them addresses this conflict. Only chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 8 do not directly talk about it. The rest of the chapters have that conflict. And this is strange to me because as Luke is writing this account, he's not approaching it like an historian. In other words, he's not just like, okay, I got paper, I got pen, I should write down about the life of Jesus. No, he has an agenda behind why he's writing. We see that right in the very first chapter in the first four verses. He has a friend of his, a man named Theophilus. And Theophilus wants to understand what does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And so Luke is compiling all of this information to tell this man this is what it looks like. This is how it's done. But in light of that, then, he spends all of this energy and uses up a lot of words to talk about Jesus' opponents. And that's strange to me. Because if you had this finite amount of paper and ink and time, wouldn't you think that he would have a, maybe a little bit better of a time articulating, um, I don't know, just more miracles of Jesus instead of talking about opponents? Wouldn't it have been better if Luke would have spent more time just cataloging more of the sermons of Jesus or talking about the transformed lives of those who left everything to follow Jesus? Like, man, if you're going to be using all of this energy, why don't you give more of those positive effects? Why talk so much about the negative? So I've wrestled with this a lot, especially since even John and his gospel, he says if we wrote down everything that Jesus ever did, we could fill all the books of the world. And so... Why then, Luke, do you expend so much energy on these negative accounts? So I've thought about this for years. And I've come to a conclusion, and maybe some won't agree, but this is sincerely my conclusion. Um, I believe all of that is in there to teach us another aspect of what it means to follow Jesus. Or maybe to put a little different, I think it's all in there to warn us. Because if there's any temptation we as human beings will have, even in following Jesus, it will be the temptation to become a Pharisee, not against Jesus, but the danger of becoming a Pharisee in the name of Jesus. 
So just as much as Jesus is saying, make sure you do these things and honor my gospel and honor my kingdom, there's this other kind of layer in the story that says, and beware, because you will be tempted to become religious, to become pharisaical, to become judgmental, and that tension will always be in there. And so when I read these accounts, I don't read about the Pharisees and judge them. I read about the Pharisees, and then I try to look at my own life and go, am I like them? Uh, Am I bleeding into being like them? Am I tempted to start thinking, acting, functioning, judging like them? Because when you really understand their lives, um, I think sometimes we, we overlay like the greatest villains of all time and we think those are the Pharisees, like they're the Nazis of the New Testament or something. But when you distill down their their worldview and their framework, these were people that, frankly, they revered the scriptures. They sought to take their religion seriously. They sought to live out biblical morality. If I try to parallel it today, they, they went to church, they gave, they served, they did all these things. Yet, for all of that, Instead of that producing in them a heart that loved what God loved, it produced in them this pride as they looked at the world around them. They thought they had it figured out and others didn't. They thought they were the good guys and everybody else was the bad guys, and that twisted their internal compass. And this pride that they began to materialize in the name of God, in the sense of wanting to honor the scriptures, this pride brought other derailments to their lives. From this, we see that they lacked empathy. They lived lives of inconsistency. They were blind to their hypocrisy. And they took a false sense of comfort in their religiosity. So when I look at their demonstration and examples, like I said, I don't look at the Pharisees and want to judge them. I want to look at the Pharisees as a cautionary tale of what it's easy for me to become if I am not cautious, if I am not humbled by the Spirit, if I am not sensitive to the mission of God. See, when I think about the world around me, I want to be aware of how it hears me, of how it sees me, of how it feels based on my actions, reactions, affections, attitudes, whatever. And the foundational question I always need to ask myself is, do I look like Jesus or do I look like religion in the name of Jesus? Which if we're honest and we look at what happens in the New Testament, religion that is in the name of Jesus often doesn't look like Jesus for all sorts of reasons, usually embedded with pride. And so, for me, that's humbling. And if I genuinely simplified what this all means for me as I try to analyze my life, I can't help but ask the question, what type of world am I trying to see built? What type of world? Am I trying to see built a world for my privileges, a world for my comforts, a world for my wants, but in the name of Jesus, so I claim his name, but it's really more about me, or am I wanting a world that is truly about Jesus, and then in that I'm willing to forgo my comforts, my desires, my wants, because his dream for the world is far superior to my dream that I have for myself. So I'm just being transparent. When I look at Luke 15 and Luke 16, I am slain 
by this sense of, man, I don't want to get this wrong. I want to make sure I'm getting Jesus right in my life. Because the difference between those two worlds, a world that I am seeking to invest in that he is building, is superior and God blesses. But a world where I'm trying to build it for my comfort, my want, my desires, but I'm doing it sort of in the name of Jesus, but it's not really in the way of Jesus, well, that's a world that God actually, according to Jesus, detests. It's not my word, it's his. Going into Luke chapter 16, verse 15. It says, he then said to them, and this is the Pharisees, right? The religious institution. He said to them, you like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts. What this world, this pharisaical, religious, you think you honor scripture and law and prophets world, this world that you're building, you think it honors God, but God sees it as detestable in his sight. I mean, those are sobering words. I know this almost starts off heavy, but we're in the middle of a heavy chapter that grabs our attention. Because their world, the problem was they had a claim on faithfulness. They thought they were faithful, but there's nothing faithful really in their claims. They thought they had hearts tender to God, but they had hearts that are hardened to God's agenda. So much so that God has come in human form. God is looking them right in the face, and they detest the image they see. They detest the character on display in the person of Jesus. All the while being a group that says, we love the Bible, and we love the God of the Bible, and we want to honor the God of the Bible, but they're looking God right in the face, and they're rejecting almost everything they see. Man, that's potent. Now, part of the challenge, I think, is that in the person of Jesus, uh, a new thing is happening. And the new thing that is happening is also the main thing. All right? And, and the main thing comes into being because of an old thing that had a purpose, and the old thing was leading to the new thing that was the main thing, but religion is now looking at all of that and saying it's all a bad thing. And so from that, there's tension, there's debate, and there's this pushback. But we see Jesus emphasizing the new thing, not that the old thing is bad or wrong. The new thing was, is, is really the main thing, but the old thing was good in its own right, but, but now they're trying to figure out how these have a relationship. And so in verse 16, Jesus says, until John the Baptist, the law of Moses, and the message of the prophets were your guides. Not the be-all, end-all, not the means by which you are rescued, but they were guides. But now, the good news, the new thing, the main thing, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone, everyone is eager to get in. Now, here's the thing. The old thing is basically the Old Testament, right? So that big chunk of your Bible on the front end where some of it, you go, man, I really get that, and other parts where you're like, I don't know what to do with that, that part. That's the Old Testament, right? And in the Old Testament, there are 613 laws of Moses, and then there's this large body of the prophets. And, and, and that's what Jesus is getting at here. And up to the time of John, the very first Baptist, not a Southern Baptist, an Eastern Baptist, but still a Baptist nonetheless, right? Up to the time of John the Baptist, the law and the prophets were in effect, but they were in effect to prepare for something. They were not to be the only thing, the exclusive thing, or the final thing. No, they, they were the beginning of a thing, but the beginning of a thing that leads to the new thing that is the main thing. That's Jesus' point. And the main thing is this idea of the good news of the kingdom of God. 
this gospel of the kingdom, this sense of victory that is declared by God through what Jesus does that's meant to change everything. That it's not just about Israel and their little microcosm, but it's actually a promise that goes all the way back to Abraham where God's like, I'm going to bless all the nations, all of them. I'm going to bring flourishing where there was decay, beauty where there was chaos, love where there was hate or disdain or indifference. I'm going to change everything through this. And so now this is all getting basically unpacked. And while even in this little passage here between old and new and, and, and law and gospel, all of that, we can unpack all sorts of things in that juxtaposition. And we've been doing that through the Gospel of Luke. But if we try to simplify this, what we're seeing, and we see this throughout the rest of the New Testament, is that the law and the prophets, they served a function related to the kingdom and the gospel, but they don't, they don't serve a function that is challenging that or is a different solution to that new thing. As though, if I just did the law and the prophets today, I would be fine, so I have to choose between law or between gospel. No, the law services things to the gospel, but the law doesn't replace the gospel. The Old Testament doesn't act as a surrogate to the New Testament, but rather it points us to this plan of God. So maybe a real simplified way to say it is that the law and the prophets, they point out our problem. 613 rules, you and I aren't going to keep those. We're going to break those all the time in all sorts of ways. So it points out our problem. But kingdom and gospel points to the solution. Law and prophets say, you are incapable to do this thing. It should overwhelm you when you read it. But kingdom and gospel says Jesus will do this thing for you that you can't do because he is the one who can accomplish it. We see from Paul that the law and the prophets, they lead to bondage and spiritual death, but law, as it points to gospel and kingdom, then unleashes freedom and spiritual life. And so what this means, again, is that the law and the prophets, they're not bad. They're good. They're good provided you let them play out their role and you don't try to make them do something they're not designed to do. So let me give you an example. Today is the AFC and NFC championship games. Woohoo! And we're not there as the Seahawks. All right, so. But you're going to watch those games, maybe some of you. And here's the thing. Uh, the referees in the game, they play a critical role. You want referees there. You want them to keep charge of the clock. You want them to, to call the fouls, make sure the game is running right. You want them to do that. That's their job. That's their role and responsibility. But what you don't want a referee to do is decide to become a quarterback or to be a wide receiver or to be a punter, right? And vice versa. You don't want the players to suddenly decide they're going to become referees. You don't want that. Each is servicing a role. And so in the same way that the law and the gospel service different roles, the law is like referees, Right? says, this is what's wrong. But the players are like the gospel. This is what puts points on the board. Right? So you want to understand that each has a relationship to the other, and so law points out need, but gospel and kingdom points out solution. And I think that's beautiful, right? Because, we're, again, how many of you have memorized all 613 rules of the Old Testament? How many of you think you're breaking probably 600 of those right now? If you've had lobster in the last couple of days, you're wearing a cotton poly blend, you're breaking them, right? Like, honestly, there's just tons of stuff. 
But I see that as liberating, so much so that you see what Jesus says is the effect. What's he say? He says people are eager to get in. So the old system was so kind of oppressive feeling. It ends in death. Paul says it ends in death. That was so heavy. And then Jesus rolls in and says, ah, but here's the new thing, the main thing, which points to this whole thing. And man, it's liberation. It's grace. It's freedom. And it's life. No wonder people are excited to get in. It's totally different than what they sensed in the old thing. Because here's what Jesus was doing as he rolls in. He was taking all of this sense of efforts and pedigree and this morality sense of things and this religious superiority and adherence and stigma and status and station. And he was saying, that's not the way God is assessing this. It's not about how well you do it, how awesome you are, how focused on things you can accomplish these things. It's none of that. He takes it off the table, right? And he says, now it's the gospel of God's radical grace. We're in this idea of repentance and again, I go back to what does repentance mean? Thinking different. It's literally what the word means in Greek. Thinking different about the standards and the way into to salvation in heaven. The way in. Think differently than the way you thought you get in. And man, you're going to have relief and release. See, he's changing it because there was a ton of people who were like, I'm the least of these. And I have no station in God's plan. And there are others who are like, man, we're religious. We're the greatest of these. And Jesus is like, ah, you're going to come to learn you're the least with that attitude. Right? So it's scandalous. He's flipping the script. It's upside down and it's backwards. Now, is this radical? Absolutely. Is it unanticipated? Totally. And it's beautiful. It's a tribute to what we've seen in God back in chapter 15. That God is aggressively loving as he seeks and he finds and he puts one on his shoulders and he carries them in celebration. The masses that thought they didn't qualify because of their station in life are moved and pressing into this. But religion is stepping back and having a problem with this. In fact, they're having a problem, I think, even with what Jesus has said as he's made these comments about law versus gospel and prophets versus kingdom, in essence, their gears are grinding. Because they're thinking to themselves, oh, this holy man, supposedly from God, doesn't like Moses, doesn't like the prophets, sees they're coming to an end. He's trying to override them, invalidate them, do it different than what is prescribed to us in the Old Testament standards. And so they're, they're going to be flipping out inside. And I think Jesus knows they're probably flipping out inside, so before they're even able to voice it, he rolls in with kind of this rebuttal to what they're probably thinking. He says in verse 17, but that doesn't mean that the law has lost its force. He says it is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the smallest point of God's law to be overturned. So what's important here is understanding that the law still has a purpose but I want to keep emphasizing the purpose is not the gospel and the kingdom. The purpose of the law is to point out our need for gospel and kingdom. It's why we say you don't earn your salvation, right? You can't earn it with 613 rules. You can't earn it with 3,000 rules. You can't earn it with any rules. 
And that's what Jesus is trying to get them to understand at the core of this. It's always going to be the grace of God intervening in the life of a person because he seeks and he finds and he carries and he rejoices. Like that's the thrust of this whole 15 and 16 chapter section here. It's that heart, that spirit. And so he wants them to understand that Moses was not the means of rescue. Moses is the way you assess your life and you see that you have need of rescue. And with that, when you look at all of these rules and that you can't do them, what it should foster in us is humility and dependency. And that should last throughout our lives. It's looking at God's standards and our inability to do them, looking at our sin and how grievous it is, whether it be self-righteous or unrighteous. Because both are in play. Religion sins are self-righteous. Disbelieving peoples are unrighteous. And both are problematic. And so we own that. And then we just cleave to the gospel of the kingdom of God's grace and love. And when we do that, when we say, man, it's not by what I do, but it's what he's done for me. And because of what he's done for me, I want to be like him. That means we orient our lives around the same idea of gospel and kingdom and love and grace. We live the truth in our lives and we play out grace toward others that they may taste the grace of God and come into living by way of his truth. And so the deepest objective of the law was to point out our sinful self-righteousness and therefore from that really possess us with this disposition of kingdom-fueled love and commitment and appreciation. To distill down the whole of the law to what most matters in its essence. And I didn't say that. This is Jesus' point. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, there's like bookends. Like he starts things off and then he comes back to him at the very end. And you see this happen in chapter five, the first bookend, where he says, don't misunderstand where I, why I've come. I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Right? That word, if you have a pencil, circle it. Their purpose. I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose has been achieved. Now, from there, when you read through the Gospel of Matthew, through the Sermon on the Mount at that point, he starts just blowing their mind. Because he's like, I came to fulfill its purpose. And then he starts walking through these different aspects of the Old Testament law and kind of flipping script a little bit. You heard it was said this, but now I'm going to tell you this. You heard it was said this, but now I'm going to tell you this. And he's getting to the essence and the heart of the law. He's trying to get them out of the, the rigors of kind of the technicalities and get them to the essence of a thing. And so he goes through chapter 5, chapter 6, and then he presses into chapter 7, and he says this. Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. Right? So when he says it at the beginning, he has a meaning behind purpose. At the end, he tells us what the purpose is. It's this golden rule. That's how you encapsulate the whole of the law. Therefore, that's why I keep saying the law does not exist. The rules don't exist. The statutes don't exist so we can justify ourselves and judge others. They exist so we can surrender ourselves and from that love others. Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 13. He says, Owe nothing to anyone 
except the obligation to love one another. For if you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. Isn't that nice to know there's one thing you can do instead of 613 things? Now, frankly, I think the 613 would be easier. I really do sometimes. I love that he raises the bar. He's like, I'm going to go ahead and go from 613 to 1, but this one is going to be tough. Love. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say you must not commit adultery, you must not murder or steal or covet or any such things, right? All the commandments are about that. They're all summed up, however, in one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. So law leads to gospel. Gospel leads to fulfilling our calling to love. And as I shared last week, I think the way we are called to love is we have to love others to show we genuinely love God. If we think I can love God and not love others, John says in 1 John 4, you're not actually loving God because God calls you to love his image bearers, even the very least of these. But religion had missed it. They thought they were faithful for their good Bible reading, their commitment to morality, their adjustment to their secular world by being uniquely sectarian in what they were doing. They thought that was what God was seeking of them, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 you've missed it. You need to get back to the heart of God's purposes for your life. And you need to realize what all of this is driving you to, a selfless, sacrificial love. Now, to highlight this, Jesus does something that's really weird at this point. He injects a statement that if you look at the context of what we've been reading, you're like, whoa, that, Jesus like saw a squirrel and just shot that direction for a second. Like, where did that theme come from? But he's kind of riding the religious establishment. And then he says this in verse 18, for example, a man who divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery. And anyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. You're like, where did that come from, bro? Like one minute you're talking about the brokenness of religion, you're talking about the kingdom, you're talking about the gospel versus the law and Moses, and then you suddenly go into this. What's the story? Well, we're not positive because it's such an odd drop in the text that we're left to kind of like figure out how it fits the context. But if we look at it, it seems that Jesus suddenly throws out there a chunk of pharisaical hypocrisy. You say you do X, but let's be honest, look at your lives, you do Y. So, so let's see if I can kind of capture this a little bit. Um, the Pharisees, uh, when it came to the subject of divorce, they were pretty cool with it. They believed, for the most part, that any man could divorce his wife for any basic reason provided he was displeased with her. And so when we look at their history, we see that if she burnt your toast, you just didn't like her haircut, she didn't provide you children, whatever it was, a, a, a man, a religious person, could divorce his wife. And they didn't make this one up. They actually get this from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Moses writes about divorce. And in that section, it doesn't say that if the wife cheats or whatever else. It just says if for some reason she displeases her husband, he is to issue her a certificate of divorce. So the Pharisees would take this passage from the law of Moses and say, I can divorce my wife because she displeases me. And so they would do that. They would exercise a technicality of the law that God prescribed through Moses, right? So they're like, hey, we're being biblical here. But they were missing the heart of the law. Now, this is going to be a little weird for us in the 21st century to understand this, but this is just the world they inhabited. 
at the time of Moses, and even up into the time of Jesus, women really didn't have their own person or identity. They were property. And when you go back to the time of Moses when he writes this, women were exchanged as property in marriage. So if a man marries a woman, she's his property. If he decides to put her away, she's burnt his toast, he doesn't want her anymore, he casts her out, the problem is she has no way to survive. She has no means of getting funds. She has no one there to feed her. And so the purpose behind the law of divorce was you write a certificate of divorce saying she's no longer your property. Somebody else can marry her and make her their property. But if a man didn't do that, he's just like, no, I'm done, you're on your own, but I'm not going to issue a certificate of divorce. She was still his property even though he wasn't caring for her. And God in his mercy looks at that situation and he wants to protect the woman from selfish men. And so he says, men, you must do this certificate of divorce so at least another man can marry her and she can have thriving and livelihood and a chance. So the heart of the law was to protect a woman. What the Pharisees were doing they were using this law to protect them as men. Jesus identifies this and says, that's the problem. The problem in all of this is you keep tinkering with the law to elevate yourselves and you miss its heart and its essence. You don't do things out of love, you do things out of technicality again. And that discloses why God detests your system and that which you honor. So he's dropping the hammer hard. He thinks, he's, he's like saying, you know, you think you're, you're righteous. But really, the way you do this in the name of Scripture is filthy. And so you think you're blessed. You think you're chosen of God, but you're actually cursed and you're abandoned by God. And from that, he then tells the story that was our reading today. It's the final story here. Jesus said there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and lived each day in luxury and his gates, at his gates was a, a man who was laying there. He was poor, and his name was Lazarus, and he was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. And so you have this image of opulence, luxury, strength, wealth. And you have another man who is riddled with ailment, and he's so sick and so ridden with sores, the dogs who are incredibly unclean to that culture would lick his sores. Now, if you weren't here last week, we looked at Deuteronomy 28, which sets up how Jesus' world understood things. Their understanding is if you were rich and in luxury and you wore a big purple robe and you had a beautiful table with lots of food, that existed because you were so godly. God had blessed you with opulence. Because Deuteronomy 28 promises for those who obey, they will be wealthy. But if you were poor and destitute and riddled with sores and the dogs were licking your wounds, much like a prodigal son hanging out with the pigs, like that means you were, you were ungodly, disobedient, and God had cursed you. So as Jesus is telling this story, the way the leaders would hear this is the rich man is a godly man, the poor man is an ungodly man. He is poor because God's cursed him, he is rich because God has blessed him. That's the way they're going to hear the story. But then Jesus flips it completely. He says, finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. He gets the seat of honor at the most esteemed man in their heritage. But then the rich man, he also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. 
And there in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. When Jesus tells this part of the story, the Pharisees' mouths would drop. They would be utterly shocked. We, we don't always grip the significance of this rich, poor, blessed, cursed thing because we're removed from some of that bias. But if I was to modernize the story, I would be saying, there was once a pastor and a pornographer. And the pastor died and he went to torment and the pornographer was seated, sitting next to Jesus. And you'd be like, well, what happened? That's how bizarre this is to the audience. They're like, that's not the way the system works. That's why Jesus gets their attention with this. So the question becomes, well, how, why? Why is the rich guy in torment and the poor guy with Abraham? Well, this next part tells us the core of the issue. It says the rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity on me. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am anguishing in these flames. Now you may not coax it out at first, but what you see is that even in hell, this man's attitude is, I am the master. And that poor man is the slave. And you tell him to dip his finger, come over here and give me water. Because everybody knows I am the greater and he is the lesser. I am the righteous one and he is the wicked one. I am the blessed one, he is the cursed one. He's so lost in himself. He doesn't see his heart or his tone or his brokenness. Even in his torment, he is locked in his self-righteous pride and his proud heart is fueling him. And so in some ways, the lesson that Jesus is trying to get at is that God measures everything not based on your compliance to rules, but your humility of heart, your brokenness more than your sense of assuredness. See, the law should lead to a heart humbled before God and therefore longing and loving toward others instead of a law that leads to condemning others, which is what this guy's doing. Tell him to come and serve me. It's just a condemnation in essence. Jesus talks about this idea of misappropriating things and that we're basically going to be measured in time for what we we do, and I don't mean that in a work sort of way, but rather just the disposition that we have is going to shape how God then handles us with a similar disposition. He says in uh, Luke chapter 6, love your enemies, do good to them. He says you must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. Do not judge others and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others or it will come back against you. Forgive others and you will be forgiven. Give and you will receive. Mercy begets mercy, and judgment begins, begets judgment. This man is there judging the poor man, demanding the poor man serve him, and he's just receiving exactly what he's doling out. Judgment begins judgment, but mercy begets mercy. So then Jesus continues with the story. He says, but Abraham said to him, son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing, and now he's here being comforted, and you are in anguish. Besides, there's a great chasm separating us, and no one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. And then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want to warn them so they don't end up in the same place of torment. 
Now, just for a second, I want to be clear and remind us that this is a parable. I don't want us to start trying to create too much theological architecture for heaven and hell because this wouldn't serve us well as far as like, oh, so in heaven, I can watch everybody suffer in hell. And everybody in hell can watch me eat dinner in heaven. We shouldn't look at it. This is just a story to communicate a point, but the point is to get the attention of pride, of arrogance, of religion, the absence of humility, grace, and love. And so that's why Jesus is telling the story. But even here, he's going to flip the story a little bit. Because here's something that might surprise you. This story doesn't originate with Jesus. This story was a familiar story before the time of Jesus, told in slightly different ways, but it was the same basic idea. Somebody dies, they realize the error, and they ask to go back. And usually the story ends with the person being allowed to go back and warn friends, family, lover, whatever. Jesus flips it. And he doesn't allow the person to go back in the story. So it's a little different. So the guy says, let me go back, let me warn. But then as Jesus tells the story, he says, Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have uh, warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead which certainly hints at the fact that Jesus will rise from the dead and Israel will still reject him. So it kind of hints at that. But his point is, if law generates pride over humility and judgment over mercy, then even a ghost can't change that. Right? They have what they need to see. And so the repentance that Jesus seeks is a rethinking of the way they were approaching the rules so they would no longer keep trying to earn and instead they would rely. That they would turn from their religious judgment and embrace the goal of the law, which is Jesus and gospel and kingdom and a heart toward God. That they would turn from their moral independence and embrace a spirit-led dependence. That they would turn from their self-empowerment and receive grace deposited to make them new. See, Jesus gets our attention in all of this. Not simply so we can cherish the gospel of grace, but so also we understand how we are to interact with and engage in a lost world around us. That this book, this message, this truth, this relationship to God is not meant for us to look at our world and judge it, but rather to look at our world and break for it to long for it, to love it, to reach it, to share with it, to be so committed to this idea of Jesus that we want to embody who he is, what he says, so that we can look at the world. And again, like I said last week, we can say to the world, if you watch my life, you'll see Jesus. Please watch my life so you can see him well. See, that's what he seeks of us. That's what he wants to deposit. That's what he's calling us to. And that's why we want to flee our temptation toward the life of the Pharisee, and we want to embrace the life of Jesus. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, your words, they cut. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that as you cut us as the word of God, it's meant to heal us, to shape us, and to perfect us in yourself. And I pray that we do that. 
I pray that we will be ambassadors of your gospel, not merely in word, but we will literally be able to say to our world, if you watch my life, you'll see Jesus. I pray that we are not satisfied with anything but that standard, that that will drive us every day, that we will have the courage to say, watch me, and you're going to see Jesus because, because we're so connected to you, so humbled before you, so needing of you. Help us and show us. Guide us, teach us, empower us, and give us the courage to really lean into you.